The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I hope you stay tuned for a very interesting conversation about an interesting book. It's a new memoir out from Justin Hawking. It's called The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. It is in part about obsession. We're talking about Herman Melville's masterpiece, Moby Dick. Also, Carl Jung's concept of the night sea journey. The book also takes us into the worlds of skateboarding and New York surfing culture and Wednesday night meetings of men striving to overcome addictions. Our guest today, Justin Hawking, lands in New York hopeful but adrift. He's jobless, unexpectedly overwhelmed and disoriented by the city, struggling with anxiety and obsession, and attempting to maintain a faltering long-distance relationship. As a man whose brand of therapy has always been motion, whether in a skate park or on a snowdrift, Hawking needs an outlet for his restlessness. And when he spies his first New York surfer hauling a board to the subway, and it's not long before he's a member of the vibrant and passionate surfing community at Far Rockaway. But in the wake of a traumatic robbery incident, dark undercurrents of his ocean obsession pull him further and further out on his own night sea journey. Justin Hawking, welcome to the program. Tom, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So um, it, let's just give a, maybe a brief thumbnail sketch of your brief biography. You were raised until you're about 11 in Colorado, right? Correct, yes. Your father's an engineer, uh, I, I think, in, and mother's a nurse. Right. I grew up in a small town called Glenwood Springs, about an hour outside of Aspen. And uh, we had a little local ski hill there, so I did a lot of skiing growing up. And it was an interesting place to grow up. So, so you did do skiing, I guess, growing up, as, as a lot of people skiing in the West do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then out to California. Correct. Uh, Correct. Yeah, we moved when I was twelve. We moved to San Diego, and that's where I got uh, really, really uh, obsessed with board sports like skateboarding, and uh, sort of dabbled in a little bit of surfing at that point, and also snowboarding, and so that that was the sort of uh, epicenter for this this lifelong uh, pursuit with board sports. So a lot of skateboarding, I think only one incident at the time, a bad experience with surfing, that, that sort of turned you off, at least for then. Yeah, you know, it's it's so funny because this this book, the memoirs, uh, you know, really revolves around surfing, and I, I grew up in San Diego, which is really, you know, one of the best places in the country to surf. But I didn't really pick it up, not until I was 30 and moved to New York City, of all places. Um, so, yeah, one thing that happened when I lived in San Diego, um, you know, the ocean is, has always been uh, really compelling to me, but also really overwhelming and, and scary in a lot of ways. And when I was, I think I was 12 years old, and my dad bought me a used surfboard and a wetsuit, and I went out, I paddled out by myself, had no idea what I was doing. I was at La Jolla Shores, and I hadn't even made it out into the lineup, and a guy that's probably about my age now, you know, in his 30s or 40s, um, basically ran over me in his fin, um, uh, you know, ripped ripped into my thigh. It didn't cut my thigh open, but it hit it, my thigh so hard that it ripped my wetsuit, and it... Uh, severely bruised my leg to the point where I could not, and my leg was temporarily paralyzed. And he had to pick me up 
and carrying me out of the water. In the book, I described it as kind of a reverse baptism. And that was my first, my very first experience with surfing. And as you can imagine, I wasn't very keen to get back into it after that happened. Um, and, and I did pick up skateboarding and found it, ironically, uh, a lot safer. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I, I still, you know, I still had this, I, I had this longing uh, for the sea and, and I really wanted to, I knew someday I wanted to, that was a sport that I really wanted to pick up. And then, you know, when I moved to New York City, uh, I, that, that was such a shock to the system aesthetically and emotionally to, to go from, a, you know, the West where we have so much open space and we take it for granted to this place where they're just open spaces at such a premium. And the one place that I really found it was uh, Rockaway Beach, uh, Long Beach, the, Mon- uh, the Montauk and the, and the Hamptons that whole area, um, and I just, uh, you know, going to the beach became just like this necessary escape. It was the, the one place where I felt like I could breathe, and there was, um, you know, like a real sense of atmosphere, and and uh, it was just a great escape. And so, you know, at age 30, I believe, I, I finally figured out, I uh, finally dedicated myself to learning how to surf, and, and it was you know, it was such a fun place to do it because it's it's so unlikely. Most New Yorkers don't even really uh, are hardly aware that they even live by the water or the ocean. You know, they're so kind of caught up in their day to day existence in the city. And um, but there, but there is a really vibrant um, subculture of, of surfing and, and interesting beach culture uh, at Rockaway Beach and. And you know, especially in the in the light of Hurricane Sandy, I just uh, just have a huge you know place in my heart for for that for that city. Mm. That uh, you you talk about um, well, first of all, uh, that uh, tell me about when you first saw the I don't know if it's a guy or girl carrying a surfboard on the on the subway, and you you yeah. you say that. A surfer in New York City is like seeing an ice climber on the streets of L.A. Totally astonishing to me. <laughs> yeah, it was. I just, you know, I just didn't really have any concept of it as at the time. I think it's becoming, oh, people are a little more accustomed to it now because there's more of it on the East Coast. But, yeah, you know, I was I was visiting the city, I think it was 2003, early 2003, and, and uh, I was there to kind of check things out, um, to spend some time with the people that became my roommates. I was working on a book, and I met a publisher about a potential book contract, and I was I was riding a little high with, with the idea of moving to that city. It's just so exciting, and I, I remember being in, this, in a lunch meeting and going outside, and I just spotted this guy coming up out of the subway with, uh, and it was in the West Village, and he, you know, he had this surfboard tucked under his arm, and it was it was astonishing. You know, I was like, I couldn't figure out maybe he'd been on vacation in the tropics or something, but but uh, you know, as, as I slowly figured out, you can actually take the subway to places like Long Beach, and or actually Rockaway, you can take a commuter train to, to Long Beach. Um, but that that idea was so compelling to me um, that that mix of um, like just, uh, you know, the most urban place in the world um, with, with the ocean and, and the ability to go out and be in, in 
the sea and to be able to ride a subway to do it and and just this, it was just interesting kind of hyper mobility that really intrigued me and and just this blend of you know all that all that New York has to offer culturally and then um, you know again the idea that you could you could go out and go surfing in, in, in the same city was I think I described it as kind of like a uh, a signal fire um, that that um, that really kind of helped me uh, or influenced me to make this bizarre decision to to move to New York City at age thirty with no solid job prospects. <laughs> mm. You say um, it, one of your chapters is called "Moving." I'll just read this uh, mm. paragraph. Uh, you you describe obsessiveness as uh, having Latin roots of opposite to sit, so meaning you can't sit yeah. still. You you're obs- have obsessive personality, and you said you crave I crave motion, action, momentum, skating, paddling, pedaling. Without these all-consuming physical activities, I can become easily bored, falling prey to darker obsessions, anxieties, self-destructive tendencies. I need an obsession to give my life a central organizing principle feel something like a sense of purpose to keep from turning on myself. Mm. And, and yeah. so um, many things, I guess it's, you, you go on to say in this chapter, it started with the break dancing, you became a good break dancer, uh-huh. yeah. and uh, skateboarding, surfing, um, but but keeping moving always, that's that's something that you, were, you found important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, it's an, I think I have kind of weird, my personality is a weird blend of, uh, hyper physicality, um, where I, I I am a really physical person, and um, uh, I, you know I think I feel most at home in the world when I feel like I'm in uh, rooted in my body and and you know doing something that I enjoy that's physical, like skateboarding or swimming or surfing for sure. Um, but the, on the other hand, uh, you know I'm a writer, and and uh, writing requires these. Um, kind of marathon-like um, stretches of time, uh, sitting still, being at the desk, forcing yourself uh, uh, to to just you know to do the writing, and um, so it's, it's it's a bit of a weird combination. But you know, I I, I do think Tom that uh, writing itself is a really a physical activity. I mean, it's it's, it's obviously it's, most of it's taking place up in your head. Uh, but just the act of writing, being able to sit that long, is that's a physical act. Um, and I think that it requires stamina and training. And, you know, there's a fantastic book that I love by Haruki Murakami. It's called uh, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And he, really, he, he draws a lot of parallels between uh, running marathons and writing a novel. Um, and it's a, re- a really interesting book. And, he, you know, he talks about... Uh, just how much, how much mental, mental and physical stamina writing does, does take. So. I wonder, as, as I was reading this, and the, the paragraph I just read of yours, that um, you could fall prey to darker obsessions, anxieties, self-destructive tendencies, need uh-huh. an obsession to give your life a central organizing principle. And I wondered if, if writing is the healthiest occupation for, for a guy like you. Uh, do, you do you find it, you know, because it's, it's, it's navel-gazing, perhaps, and, and maybe not completely healthy for an obsessive. Uh, do you find it well, cathartic? or? Uh... Yeah, I, well, you know, um, I think navel-gazing gets a bad rap. I mean, think about your navel. It's, the, it's <laughs> sort of like the 
center of the universe. From mm-hmm. it's this like kind of profound connection to your mother, but also to uh, to creation. You know, I love that. I love that idea, and um, I think that uh, certainly it is. It is there. There are hazards to the trade, especially for for someone that tends to ruminate like me um, and tends toward towards rumination. But, you know, it's a great question. And I, I think that, that um, yeah, sometimes, it, sometimes it, it exacerbates that rumination. But, uh, you know, Rollo May, the, the famous humanist psychologist, wrote a book called The Courage to Create. And, he, you know, he talked about the creative act as, as sort of the, the pinnacle of, of human healthiness and, and individuation. And so, if, you know, it's certainly not, it doesn't always feel that way when you're sitting down to write and you're stuck on something, or especially when you're writing a memoir and you're dredging up painful memories. But, but I do, I, I really do feel like uh, uh, writing, again, has its hazards, but it's, it's, it's in my blood and, and, it, and it is, I think, a, a, really, um, a really healthy activity that, can also, you know, in some really interesting ways, can actually get you out of your head when you're, even when writing a memoir, when, you know, I, I went off on so many digressions in this book and sort of, uh, you know, explored um, history and philosophy and psychology and religion. And, and, um, and I, I just, I love, I love literature can, I think, really transport you and help you kind of transcend yourself in many ways. So, so there's that that aspect of it as well. This might be a good place to, and I'm skipping over a bunch here, and we'll we'll loop back and and uh, pick up a lot. But near the end of your book, you you talk about uh, Barry Lopez, uh, who sure. m- many of our yeah. listeners will be familiar with, and uh, he's he's a fellow, I guess Moby Dick and Melville obsessive. By the way, that I hadn't known this. Yeah. Uh, there's a phrase, the White Death. Explain that. What is that? Uh huh. Well, uh, I think that that was. Coined by Charles Olson, who was a, I believe he was working in the early to mid 19th century. He's a well-known poet. Um, he, I think, he was one of the founders of the Black Mountain School, this experimental arts college, and I think in the, somewhere in the south. Um, and he was just—he was a, a really remarkable poet. And he wrote this book called "Call Me Ishmael," um, that uh, was. One inspiration for for my own book in some in some ways, um, but it's it's just a series of uh, very stream of consciousness riffs uh, about about Moby Dick and and about Melville, and uh, just a, f- a fascinating book. If if your reader if the listeners haven't heard of it, uh, they they might want to check it out. It's a great read. So he uh, was the, there's this there's this kind of lore that I that I talk about in my own book. Um, an academic went to visit him, and this academic had been working on some of his own writing about Moby Dick, and this was kind of the height of the um, Moby Dick revival, like in the 20s and 30s and 40s, when people were starting to rediscover and celebrate this book that had been ignored in its own time. And um, so the story goes that Olson was was sitting in his in his cramped, Greenwich Village apartment surrounded by all his stacks of books and old copies of Moby Dick and all his papers and and uh, he's reading this this academic's work and he says you know it looks like the, the 
looks like the you've caught the white death too um and the white death is this sort of his phrase for um for this weird, this bizarre preoccupation with with Melville and Moby Dick that um quite quite a few people quite a few artists uh and writers um and even scientists and philosophers and other types have have been plagued both plagued and blessed by so yeah, the White Death. Uh, so uh, and we'll come back to this uh, top fascinating topic: the the White Death and, and obsession yeah. with Moby Dick and and Melville. Uh, but Bar- Barry Lopez, he um, as you write in the book, ended up reading Moby Dick uh, three times before college, and he mm-hmm. says, as you quote him, as an eventual environmental writer, he found most akin yeah. to his own desire to describe, as he says, what happened, what I saw when I went outside. And uh, in yeah. his uh, essay, The Whale Boat, he talks about what we were just talking about, um, about contemplation or the lack thereof. And what he says is American culture's general lack of contemplation. I wonder if you could take it up yeah. there and, and, and tell us what you're talking about in that chapter. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, the chapter, it was really fun in this book to, to kind of riff off, you know, to tell my story through multiple other stories. And uh, I, I just love this this essay by by Barry Lopez. He's one of my favorite writers. And yeah, like you said, it's called the Whale Boat. And, and it's really hard to put your finger on exactly what this essay is about. Um, he's not an easy writer to pigeonhole, but it, it does, like you said, it revolves this, this idea revolves around this idea that um, that a balanced life and a balanced culture and society. Requires this um, homeostasis, uh, a balance between uh, action and contemplation, and he uh, posits the notion that Ahab is just pure action. Um, he he has no really ability or desire to contemplate the ramifications of his actions. He's on this mad quest after the whale, and it's like, it's almost psychopathic. It is psychopathic, the way that he just has no regard for um, the way that his vengeance uh, puts in, at, endangers everyone aboard the Pequot. Those are hundreds of men. Um, and then you compare him to someone like uh, Starbuck on board, who is uh, the first mate and who uh, is fully cognizant of Ahab's madness and petrified of this man, and um, ruminates about how to stop how to stop what what Ahab has put into motion. But he's 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 so contemplative, as is probably Ishmael, the other main character, um, that they are un, unable to take action. And so I think it's a really it's a kind of interesting dichotomy to explore. And I think Barry Lopez is making maybe a subtle point about how uh, a healthy individual life requires this balance of a- uh, action and contemplation, and a healthy culture uh, requires that that same balance. And you know, I, when I when I was in New York, it was the height of the Iraq War, and and um, I was thinking a lot about um, about the war, kind of in, in these terms, how I, I didn't feel like there was had been enough contemplation of the ramifications of, of our actions um, in, in invading that particular country. 
In fact, as you point out, and I'd, I'd forgotten this, uh, remembered it as, as you pointed out, there were some things being thrown around from Moby Dick, uh, you know, about yeah. obsession from that book, uh, uh, you know, equating Captain Ahab to Saddam Hussein or to President Bush, and, uh, you know, kind of sort of a blind mm-hmm. obsession. Yeah, or to Osama bin Laden as an Ahab figure, um, yeah, certainly to um, to uh, Dick Cheney as, as kind of an Ahab figure. And there's this there's this really um, uncanny passage in in early in in Moby Dick uh, where he kind of is kind of quoting from this imaginary Ishmael's quoting from this imaginary um, advertisement or newspaper headline and it says grand contested election for the presidency of the United States um, whaling voyage by one Ishmael and bloody battle in Afghanistan. So again, it's just kind of, he's kind of throwing in his own little relatively insignificant voyage into these big, you know, these big events that were happening. And it's, it's a lot of people, especially around 2003, 2004, pointed out how strange that was and how kind of prophetic, uh, because this was right after the grandly contested election between uh, Bush and Al Gore. Uh, and then, you know, also we had a bloody, we had our own bloody battle in Afghanistan going. So a lot of people were drawing a lot of parallels between what was happening in the Middle East and um, Moby Dick, which I really think is, is a book for the ages. You know, it's, it transcends its own age and it speaks to, I think, can speak to, to American culture at almost any time in its history, but, but something about uh, that particular time, I think, was part of the reason I was so obsessed with the book because I was so disturbed about what, what was happening with our country and felt that it uh, had sort of been hijacked in some ways by Ahab figures. Um, we are going to take a brief break. When we come back, uh, more with Justin Hawking. His memoir is titled The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. When Justin Hawking moves to New York City, his obsession with the novel Moby Dick deepens, and he discovers a thriving surf culture at Rockaway Beach. Soon, in the wake of a difficult breakup and a traumatic robbery, he embarks on his own night sea journey. We'll talk more about Moby Dick, obsession with Moby Dick, and um, a connection with Carl Jung to Herman Melville, which, interestingly... Uh, Justin Hawking discovers in sort of the dank-smelling basement of the library at Colorado State University, which had been flooded. There's another water reference. More following this break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. To address the frightening public health concerns of increasingly frequent drug-resistant pathogens, USU Uinta Basin biology professor Leanna Etchberger and her students are on the hunt for new antibiotics. The students collect soil samples and antibiotic-producing microbes in the vernal area and upload their findings to a central database of samples from around the world. Their efforts contribute to a global effort to combat disease. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. 
We're back with Justin Hawking. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. His memoir, just out from uh, uh, Gray Wolf Press, is uh, The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. Justin Hawking, uh, raised in Colorado and California, um, almost on a whim, decides to move out to New York City and uh, try his luck out there. He wants to write a novel. He uh, gets hooked into uh, a thriving surf culture, which many of us don't know about at Rockaway Beach um, off Long Island. And uh, his obsession with the novel Moby Dick deepens as well as we go along. And at the same time, he's, he's trying to nurse along a long-distance relationship um, and uh, dealing with his own uh, inner demons. Uh, it's a very interesting memoir and out, as I said, from uh, Grey Wolf Press. Uh, so uh, I wonder, uh, hopefully you have your book with you. Sure. Justin Hawking. I wonder, this is a good way to get us uh, into this. And it gives us a little more about uh, Moby Dick. Page 16. I wonder if you just read page 16 mm-hmm. for me. Certainly. And we can set this up by uh, expanding on uh, what, I, what I said before the break. You're at Colorado State, I think, working on your graduate degree. Yeah. And you say the library had been flooded, at least the basement. They'd, yeah. They'd got all the books back by irradiation, but there's still sort of a, uh, a smell of water. And yeah. so I guess a little ironic that uh, you're, yeah. you're uh, by this time you're already well into your Moby Dick obsession. You're looking for books about uh, Melville and Moby Dick, um, and you discover a book. Tell us a little bit about the book, and then then read for us page sixteen. Sure. You know, I I went down in the basement looking for critical theory um, about Moby Dick, and and I found a lot of. A lot of titles that felt a little bit run-of-the-mill to me until I came across uh, a union interpretation of the book, um, as in uh, the famous American psychologist Carl Jung. Um, And the the book was called Melville's Moby Dick, an American Nakia. The word is spelled N-E-K-Y-I-A. And I'll go ahead and start reading on page 16, and it kind of defines that term. The word Nakia derives from the title of the 11th book of the Odyssey, wherein Odysseus ascends into the underworld to commune with the dead. According to the author, Edward Edinger, Moby Dick is the quintessential American Nakia, a kind of metaphorical night-sea journey through despair and meaninglessness, symbolizing the dark passages that we all embark on during our development as individuals and as a society. In union theory, most spiritual journeys begin with a kind of universal descent into the underworld, where we come face to face with our own darkness, weaknesses, and fears, our shadow. So Moby Dick can be read as Ishmael's confrontation with his dark side in the form of Ahab, just as most of us wrestle daily with our own dark moods and impulses, and our country reckons with its imperialistic shadow side. The clash turns bloody and violent, and Ahab's resentful pursuit of the white whale brings down the entire ship. Only Ishmael is reborn through the wreckage. Having assimilated his shadow after this deep deep psychic battle, he floats upward through a spiraling whirlpool. In Jungian terms, the circular current is a mandala, an ancient symbol of wholeness and individuation. 
so I'll stop there, Tom. Okay. And you say that's where it began, your own white death. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a syndrome characterized by, you know, like obsessive thoughts about the book and about Melville and his life and collecting of old copies of the book and talking about it to anyone who will listen. <laughs> Uh, so, what do you make? I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. Anybody with the White Death probably has of an obsession yeah. about a book whose central theme is obsession. Sure, sure. It's uh, it's odd and it's somehow apropos. Um, and yeah, again, I I I think it has to do with that obsessive element. Um, uh, you know, Ahab is this obsessed, um, quintessentially obsessed person. Um, but, I, you know, I have to say, Tom, that my, I think that my interest in the book, uh, my preoccupation is with the main character, the narrator of Ishmael, um, who, some, who often gets overlooked when people are talking about the book in kind of a general way. They're, they're mostly thinking of Ahab, and they have these kind of preconceived notions of what the book's about. But I, I'm really fascinated by Ishmael, who's more of kind of a uh, spiritual seeker, and and you know, like I read, um, I think the book is about obsession, absolutely. But I, I'm fascinated with the book as um, a kind of postmodern guidebook for surviving uh, these dark times, these dark periods in our life. I, I, I read the book as a kind of survival narrative, and and that's that's why I I think I after going through you know, struggling in New York and then going through a particularly traumatic uh, event and subsequently kind of spiraling into a dark emotional place. I really clung to the book, uh, to Moby Dick, uh, as, you know, I really clung to this, this union interpretation that, that um, sort of like going through this, this dark uh, journey and confronting this kind of, these kind of shadowy figures and these um, um, confronting these these dark emotions like revenge and vengeance and anger and fury and um, and and all these things uh, that can lead to the night sea journey, uh, which is itself kind of a kind of a dark uh, spiritual rebirth in many ways, and, and so that that's kind of I think that I that notion that that personal journey for me uh, is kind of what the book really on its deepest level, revolves around. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I, 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 was, I, I was worried about writing this book that people would think I was, like, comparing myself uh, to characters in the book or to Melville or Ahab, but more than that, I, I, I hope that I really wasn't doing that. I was, I was more reading the book as, um, again, as, as a survival story, as inspiration. Uh, I wonder if you could expand on that, how, how this is transformative for you and, and probably for other people as well, this experience, um, the, this this night sea voyage. You write night sea voyage, uh, yeah. that uh, in, in, in the wake of your breakup, you have a breakup, there's traumatic incident of robbery, um, which yeah. really has you spiraling downward. Um, and you yeah. say, this is interesting, you paraphrase Joan Didion, you lost your own life's narrative. So without your own script, you clung to Moby Dick as kind of postmodern survival yeah. guide. Um, yeah. but it, it's transformative yeah. for you. You had to descend into this dark place, but but you're reborn. 
Yeah, it's in in a, in a very subtle way. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I I was uh, in 2006. I flew to Colorado, and it was it was kind of ironic because you know I've been living in New York City uh, for a couple of years, and and New York is actually a, a really safe place for the most part. Um, and then I I hadn't been in back home in in my home state of Colorado and the city of Denver for more than 40 minutes when I pulled up to my stepsister's house and um, I was in this rental car and for some reason the key got stuck in the ignition of the car. It was just bizarre. And then uh, this SUV pulled up with uh, some uh, young men with guns (laughs) who, you know, uh, basically took all our belongings and carjacked us and stole the rental car and everything my computer with this novel I'd been working on for a long time. and The whole thing was actually sort of comedic when it happened, because it happened so quick. And um, But, uh, you know, I was already, I was already in, this, in, a, in a difficult place, and I was uh, struggling with my career and writing and relationships. And um, I think that uh, I had, um, not to downplay PTSD, uh, but I did... I did have some. Um, I had a certain degree of that, and um, I subsequently just went went to a really dark place. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I like I, in the White Album, Joan Didion, uh, this amazing essay that she wrote, and she does kind of talk about uh, uh, this era in the in the '60s, right after the Charles Manson murders in L.A. when there's just kind of this mass confusion and mass hysteria, and she she had really sort of lost her her own personal narrative, and she she just wasn't sure what the rules were. That she didn't feel like she had any directions for how how to proceed with life. And I and I for uh, you know a couple months there, I I think I felt the same way, and um, and that's where you know I. I I don't want to. I think it's a little maybe over dramatic to say that Moby Dick like saved my life, but it, you know when you're in the when you're in that period, you cling to any any kind of narrative you can. And so Moby Dick is a really dark book, and I think that's part of the reason that it spoke to me because I was in such a dark place myself, and I just I just held fast to this idea of surviving um, uh, like Ishmael through through this period. And it was what I was surviving. Really, was my own self-destructiveness um, because I was so, so unhappy uh, and and uh, about how things had turned out. And I was again kind of dealing with this uh, tra- trauma and 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 um, frankly dealing with uh, some suicidal ideation. And um, and so I think that I think that that's what literature. Literature does so many different things, but one of the things that I love about it is that it does it does provide us with with these stories that can help us survive these periods. It does shine some light on on the dark places in, in our lives. It does, uh, in my in my opinion, the best literature. It, it, it's uh, about wounded characters, um, sort of grasping towards towards some sort of redemption, and um, I, I think that that's how, how I read, one way that I read Moby Dick, and, and, and one reason that it was it was so um, helpful and, and transformative to me, and I, 
and and the, the experience of, of this kind of this kind of my own night sea journey, you know, culminated in moving to Oregon, and I uh, miscalculated the power of the Pacific Ocean uh, in the winter time, and and um, had a really frightening uh, experience uh, getting caught in a riptide, and and just sort of I think I uh, sort of confronted death head on and realized that I didn't, I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to make it back to shore in a literal and kind of metaphorical way. And, and, uh, I think that, um, uh, things really opened up for me in such interesting ways after that. And, and, um, I, my life stabilized and, and, um, I, uh, was able to just reach this point of, um, feeling a lot, a lot more, um, positive and, and creative, and that's, that's when I, I was able to reflect back on this experience and start, start drawing these connections with this book that I loved and realized that maybe there's a book in this, and uh, that's, that's what sparked it. Uh, the book, by the way, if you just joined us, is The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. It's a memoir by Justin Hawking, my guest for the hour. We're going to take another brief break. When we come back, we'll explore a little further this idea of this, this uh, night sea journey I'll ask uh, Mr. Hawking how universal he thinks uh, this is, others he has perhaps talked to about this. Um, and I, I'm, I just have to ask you, Mr. Hawking, we'll do this p- following the break, what it's like to edit romance novels. That's what you were ended yeah. up doing in, uh, in <laughs> New York City. More following the break. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Justin Hawking, who is author of several books. Uh, Most uh, lately is The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. It's a memoir. Uh, When he moves to New York City, his obsession with the novel Moby Dick deepens, and he discovers a thriving surf culture at Rockaway Beach. Soon in the wake of a difficult breakup and a traumatic robbery, he embarks on his own night sea journey. That's what we've been talking about just uh, prior to the break. We're on tape in this uh, part, uh, this hour of the program, uh, but you can respond at uh, upraxcess at gmail.com. So, uh, Justin Hawking... The, you've been talking about your own night sea journey. Is it transformative for you, even included uh, for you facing physical death? And that, that made the decision that you definitely wanted to live and, and, and uh, thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how universal do you think is that this idea of the night sea journey? Do, do Does each one of us in our own way have to face this? Have you talked to other people who've have gone through such an experience? And I guess a related question, what... If you have talked to other people about this, what what got them through it? What was their narrative? You turned to Moby Dick. Sure, I, you know, I I, th- I think that there is an element of universality in it. I think it is a kind of an archetypal um, journey, and and you know, the psychologist Carl Jung really talked about it as such. And I think that uh, this, you know, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think that during our development as as humans, we we all embark on these night sea journeys, or another word for it might be kind of a dark night of the soul, uh, whenever we suffer a loss or a trauma and then find ourselves you know, floating alone and directionless and scared and unsure if we'll make it back to solid ground. There's, I think that these journeys, I mean, if you, if you imagine,
imagine that feeling of actually being at sea at night, um, potentially stranded on a, on a ship. Um, there's a tremendous feeling of fear and, and uncertainty. I mean, that that is maybe one of the most quintessential aspects of of the feeling is this kind of unknowingness if you're if you're going to make it back to solid ground. And so, again, I, I don't. I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think that I think that there is there is universality in it. I think it is an experience that that most people are going to have at some course some course in their at some point in their their adult life. Now, some um, uh, oh, uh, uh, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, I was going to say you asked about other people that have been through the same experience. You know, to be honest, Tom, it's not something that uh, people talk about that much, um, and. Um, that is why I love the the memoir uh, genre because I feel like and the same goes for fiction too. But I feel like I feel like that um, literature and for me especially creative nonfiction um, is it can be a sacred space where people are empowered to say things that they wouldn't necessarily say even to their friends or family during the course of a casual conversation. Mm. And so for me the 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 works that I love most uh, are the ones where you do have a sense of the, the narrator having been through this kind of uh, descent experience and, and, and then having emerged transformed and whole. And, you know, I'm thinking of um, a friend of mine and, and one of my favorite authors, Cheryl Strayed, who wrote the book Wild, um, really, really well-received memoir about um, losing a mother and dabbling with hard drugs and just being completely lost in her life and, and then embarking on this thousand-mile-long thousand uh, hike through the, uh, on the Pacific Crest Trail and kind of rediscovering herself there. Uh, another one of my favorite books is that it's fictional. I think it's very autobiographical fiction, um, but uh, Dennis Johnson's book called Jesus' Son, uh, which is also about kind of drug abuse and this uh, addicted state and, and a kind of subsequent subtle reawakening. So the, those, are, those tend to be the, the narratives that I'm not always, but uh, often drawn towards. So briefly, I promised it before the break, um, a couple other things I want to get onto, but um, what's it like to edit romance novels? That's what you ended up doing in, in New York. Yeah, well, that was part, part of the reason that I was unhappy with my career. I worked in publishing, and, and I should say first that um, uh, I, I worked with a fantastic editor. Uh, my my boss at the company I worked for was just such a warm and uh, intelligent person, and I was really lucky to work with someone like him, and I learned a lot from him. Uh, and I worked on all kinds of books. Um, I, you know, we we did uh, we had some interesting books in our back um, in our back titles of books like. Um, the famous anti-war book, uh, Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo. Uh, I worked on a re-release of that at kind of at the height of the uh, Iraq War and felt like it was a pretty timely release. And I worked on some really fascinating books, but yeah, um, I do have a chapter in the book where I talk about my boss kind of bringing me in and sitting me down and saying, you know, look, uh, the publishing industry is changing and uh, one of one of the things that's selling best for us right now is romance, and so I need you to edit some more of these. And, uh, you know, I absolutely do not want to cast any 
aspersions on any genre of literature. Uh, I have a lot of respect for, for, for romance. I have respect for anyone that can write a book that is readable and interesting and actually finish that book. Um, and, you know, you think about some of the masters, some of the originators of the romance genre, uh, you know, the Bronte sisters, um, Jane Austen. I mean, these are fantastic, uh, uh, really influential writers, and, and, uh, and that's, where, that's where contemporary romance derives from. But um, actually working on it uh, was troubling for me because... Uh, I was in the, th- you know, going through. A, I'd been through a major breakup, and I was um, sort of contemplating and working on a life of failed relationships. And so, at least at that point, and so reading in that genre was, uh, uh, and editing in that genre was um, just really unfulfilling and even um, despair-inducing at times. Mm-hmm. You. Uh... You did an interesting thing. I mean, it's, it seems logical, but I guess it wouldn't occur to everyone. You're working on trying to work through why you keep having these failed relationships. And you, yeah. you end up in uh, Wednesday night meetings. Uh, is this, I don't know, is this AA or NA or it's... it's... Well, yeah, I, I, uh, for the sake of anonymity, I, I don't talk about this specific group, but it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a support group and uh, with... Uh, a lot of men who were all working on the same issues, um, kind of codependency and relationship issues. And uh, it was, I tell you what, it was, it was a humbling experience to, um, to A, realize that I had this problem that I had been sort of using people, using relationships my whole life, uh, and then to make the decision to, to kind of descend down. It was, you know, the meetings actually took place in this basement church and to kind of descend down into those rooms and um, and face to face with again this, this kind of shadowy aspect of myself um, and and frankly a, a kind of an, an, an addictive aspect of myself um, but uh, I met amazing people there and and uh, uh, and it and it, it I have to say that it really really did transform my life and and um, and taught me a lot of things about how to be in relationship, you know, romantically, but also just, just with anyone. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I've, I'm now engaged to be married. And, and oh, so congratulations. I, thank you. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really glad that I did that work and continue to, continue to do that work. Yeah, it, it bore fruit. The, the interesting thing there was, uh, you know, you, you made that connection, sort of that through theme of obsession and, and addiction. Yeah. You know, even though you, you may not... It may not have occurred to everybody. Uh, I'd like to just have a oh two or three minutes left. I'd like to to, to loop back around to Melville. I hadn't yeah. known this, and you you talk about. I was reading an interview you gave where you you go on you know pilgrimages, and I guess a lot of people are obsessed with Moby Dick and Melville to do this. Uh, yeah. But you you pointed out something out that I I hadn't known. Um, uh, Moby Dick maybe was ahead of its time. I guess no maybe about it, and it. Uh, Killed his career. Yeah. Well, to, to, to sort of as, as sort of a preamble to my to my answer, I, I just you know, I think I just really would really encourage any listeners that haven't given Moby Dick a chance um, to to 
to maybe pick up a copy and, and um, especially consider picking up a copy of the, um, the modern library classics version of the book, uh, which is just the typography is really well done and there's really beautiful illustrations by Rockwell Kent. And it's, I think so much of it about actually making it through the book is, is about getting the right version because there's a lot of really poor versions out there and that's the reason a lot of people abandon the reading experience, um, you know, a few chapters in. But, but yeah, you know, the book, and, I, you know, we've been talking about my book and as you mentioned all the things that it encapsulates, it's, you know, I can imagine that it might be confusing for the reader to think, well, wow, there's so many different elements in this book. What's this, you know, what is this book really about? And people had the same experience with, with Moby Dick because I, I think that it was postmodern before the term postmodern even existed. It's, it's just this, in my opinion, like a colossal creative achievement in the way that it collages um, and braids so many different elements, uh, and there's so many different forms of storytelling and narrative. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, it's like a novel, but then there's long nonfiction chapters about, uh, about the taxonomy of whales, and there's a whole chapter that's just a sea shanty, and there's stagecraft, and there's poetic language, and, and then there's other just random, seemingly random stories thrown into the middle of the book that sort of resonate with the overall book, but, but in this day and age would probably end up on the cutting room floor because they're so digressive. Um, and so during its time, it, it, I think that Melville made $600 total on this book, that, and it's just heartbreaking because, of course, it went on to be uh, revived in the 1920s and, you know, it's largely considered one of the greatest novels ever written. And I think that the reason it was revived in the 20s is because um, there was more appreciation for the way that, that it, um, the way that it told the story in such a multivalent way. It's, it breaks out of that conventional kind of uh, step-by-step formulaic plot and, and just does some just makes some spectacular moves on a on a narrative and craft level. So, um, what do you think Melville would make of you know a, a bunch of people like you suffering from the White Death? <laughs> I don't. He, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I have no idea. Um, I, I sometimes think about that. Would Would the two of us get along in <laughs> in a you know in person? And I God, I would have loved to have met him. I was so, uh, you know, I feel so inspired by him. Um, I don't see him as a hero figure, though. He was a flawed, he was a really flawed human being. Um, but uh, I think I think that he would probably be pretty thrilled that uh, that you know he, he his book is that his work is um, so lasting and important in our culture, and especially because you know he. He died in obscurity in terms of, in a literary sense. I mean, he he wrote Moby Dick, it kind of tanked his career. He wrote Pierre, which is one of the most bizarre novels ever written, and that put the final nail in his career as a novelist. But And then he worked for, you know, a couple decades as a customs clerk in New York City and was kind of secretly writing poetry on the side. And, uh, and then toward the end of his life, he wrote Billy Budd, which is... Uh, 
considered one of the, the most important novellas uh, in the canon. And so he he never quit, and I God, I admire him for that. Um, even given all the uh, the heartbreak and in terms of his career, all the all the um, terrible reviews and and the financial problems, he just ne- he just never quit. And so I think that he I think they would really appreciate that um, that that so many people have have championed him. We are out of time. We'll leave it there. Of course, uh, much more in this book. It's being well received. Um, the memoir is The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. The author is Justin Hawking. Uh, just for a couple of examples, so Wonder World was named a Barnes & Noble Discover new, uh, Great New Writers selection. It was named as one of the ten brilliant books that will grab you from page one by the Huffington Post and uh, Kirkus Reviews. And uh, Justin Hawking has joined us from Oregon. He lives in Portland, uh, teaches at Eastern Oregon University, and he's uh, um, he is co-founder of the year-long certificate program to creative writing at Independent Publishing Resource Center. Justin Hawking, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Tom, thank you so much. It was, it was, I really enjoyed speaking with you. And uh, I as well. Uh, thanks so much, and uh, join us, of course, again tomorrow for Access Utah. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The time now is 10 o'clock.